This is Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking discussion about everyday dilemmas. Today, we're talking about student loan forgiveness. The legality of President Biden's plans to forgive up to $20,000 in student loans is before the Supreme Court right now. This program could offer student debt relief to millions of people, but what's the cost to the country? Let's talk about it. I'm your host, Marna Ashburn, here with wife, mother, and attorney Kelly Halligan-Zimmerman. Hi, Kelly. Morning, Marna. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, everybody. Just want to mention that even though it's mid-March, it's snowing here in the Philadelphia area (laughs) after us having gotten no snow all winter. Oh, no. I think (laughs) it's good for you. I really do. Never can count on spring. It's a fall (laughs) spring. And Mike Derrick, a retired Army officer, combat vet, and father of four. How's the weather up there, Mike? Um, It is um, looking out at uh, complete white layer of snow. So we oh. have about six inches of snow, and um, we love it because I'm going skiing today. I figured. I figured so, you would. yeah. Good morning, everybody. Cross-country skiing, we should say. Yes. Right? Yes. That's what mm-hmm. you do. Although you do live not too far from Lake Placid. You could. Right. So we're going over there today to the Olympic Trails at Mount Van Hovenberg. Very cool. Yeah. Well, hello to both of you. To your listeners, your comments are always welcome. Inbox at ethicsandetiquette.com is our email. Our goal here is to offer you insights and perspectives on sticky situations so you can examine your choices and exercise your own ethical muscles. Let me offer a little bit of background on student loan debt to our listeners before we launch into this complicated topic. At the center of this controversy is the Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students Act of 2003, or HEROES. During the COVID-19 pandemic, the Trump and Biden administrations used the HEROES Act to suspend student loan payments and interest. The Trump administration paused student loan payments twice. The Biden administration continued the pause several more times, announcing they would last through December 31st, 2022. So from August 2020 to the present, student loan payments and interest have been paused. In August 2022, the Biden administration used the HEROES Act again to announce student debt cancellation of up to $20,000 a person. This would later be the basis of Biden versus Nebraska, one of the two cases before the Supreme Court right now. Student loan payments and interest continue to be paused until 60 days after litigation is resolved or 60 days after June 30th, 2023. So it's coming up at any rate, no matter what the resolution of the Supreme Court case is. But that's been three years of no payments or no interest on student loans. So Kelly, let's start with you. Do you want to use your legal background to fill us in on this Supreme Court case? Sure. I think you did a good job of kind of summing up how we got here. So we're we're talking about $400 billion. Wow. And that's according... Yeah, I mean it's it's an amazing sum. So we're talking, that's we're talking real money. Oh yeah, and we're and that's according to the nonpartisan um, Congressional Budget Office. So I think a very reliable source, and it impacts student debt for about forty three million Americans or borrowers. So it is ex- an extraordinary situation with a huge sum of money, half a trillion dollars, and millions of Americans that are impacted. So on February 28th, there were arguments before the Supreme Court of the United States, very interesting, and 
they made it all the way up to the Supreme Court based on suits brought by six different Republican-led states, Nebraska, Missouri, Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, and South Carolina. And then separately, there was another suit by two individuals who also sued to stop the new plan. The arguments from the states were primarily based on something called the Major Questions Doctrine, um, which is really interesting, and it's a somewhat uh, recent development in the law. And under the doctrine, courts can reject claims of regulatory authority when First, the underlying claim of authority concerns an issue of, and I'm going to put in quotes, <laughs> vast economic and political significance. And two, when Congress has not clearly empowered the agency with authority over the issue. So here, the HEROES Act allows the Secretary of Education the power to, and I'm going to read from the statute, waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision to protect borrowers affected by, and then, you know, again, I'm going to read right from the statute, a war or other military operation or national emergency. And obviously, both President Trump and President Biden declared the pandemic as a national emergency. Trump did it initially, and Biden continued that you know, declaration or status. So the big issue from the states that they argued uh, was under the, the major questions doctrine. And the conservative majority completely bought that argument. You know, again, it requires that the government initiatives with major political and economic co- consequences be clearly authorized by Congress. And even the liberal justices believed that this was a major questions uh, doctrine issue. They they completely agreed with that. The issue was, does the language in the statute waive or modify? Is that clear? Um, and does it permit outright cancellation? So that was really the argument um, that was before the court. The administration argued that, you know, the plan fit comfortably within the statutory language. You know, they basically said, hey, the whole point of the statute is to ensure that in the face of a national emergency that's causing financial harm, the secretary can do something. On the other hand, the states and the Supreme Court basically said, look, these kinds of initiatives with these kind of consequences, they have to be clearly authorized by Congress. You know, in other words, Congress holds the purse. They make monetary decisions. Something this broad something this huge has got to be clearly, you know, permitted by Congress. So that was really the major argument that was taking place based on this major questions doctrine. A secondary argument was about standing. So I'll stop talking there and and see if if what I'm saying makes sense. Now, I had a question about standing, um, because there's some doubt about whether the parties bringing the case have standing. In other words, are they the hurt party? Right, but right. One, and, of the, yep. one of the common commenters on TV said justices have been known to, to see standing so that they can con- continue to discuss the case and rule on the case. Do you think there's going to be standing here? I do. I think that that is the administration's, the strongest argument whereby the administration can prevail is to argue that 
you know, the petitioners don't have standing. That's really seems to be their strongest argument, because I think on the major questions doctrine, it's very clear that six of the justices are going to rule in the petitioner's favor. It, it really is. So standing might be the best argument. And standing requires that to participate in a case, a plaintiff or a petitioner has to have sustained or will s- sustain direct injury or harm. So it was interesting because Justice Kagan spoke about that and specifically related to the loan authority from the state of Missouri. And they were not a party, the loan authority. Right, Mohila. Missouri sued on their behalf. And so, you know, she made the point that, hey, usually we don't allow one person to step into another person's shoes and say, I think that this person over here suffered harm even if the harm is very great. She noted that. So I think if there's a chance for the administration to, to prevail and you know forgive this huge amount of debt, it would be on the basis of standing. And one of the conservative justices, or two of them, would have to buy that argument and go over with the three more liberal justices. Uh, the liberal justices you know, seemed comfortable. They did believe that it was a major questions doctrine issue, but they also seem to believe that Congress had clearly empowered the agency to act. Kelly, what about the parallel suit with the two individuals? Would they have standing? And might might that affect the outcome here? I don't know how these two cases are being handled as are they handled as a uh, a pair or Yes, they, they are they are kind of handled as a pair, but the court should comment on both of them. And basically, as far as the two borrowers are concerned, questions about standing were also raised. Um, And the court, none of the courts seemed to buy their position, Mm -hmm. um, according to everything I read. Um, None of the justices, conservative or liberal, um, were sympathetic with their position. So it, it just doesn't seem like they're you know, they're going to buy that they have standing to sue because they were deprived of some opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So I think that one isn't, I don't think that one's going to be a major part of the decision. We should point out that this seems to be falling right down through party lines. Even the two individuals bringing the suit, they're being bankrolled by a conservative organization. I'm just looking through my notes right now, trying to find out. Yeah, I mean, this one is interesting to see that it is falling along, you know, party lines, because when it comes to legal arguments, because when you look at kind of the polls and people's positions, and I don't know how reliable the polls are, it seems that it's not popular, no matter whether you're liberal or conservative, perhaps it's driven more by age. Millennials seem very supportive of this. Um, It's funny, it it is a political issue, but in some ways it's not. That's an interesting take on it. Yeah, that it's it's generational. Well, do I disagree? Um, I don't disagree with the fact that it definitely is generational. Uh, Young people who have a direct stake in this are oftentimes, most most often in favor of it, those who are older and more established and perhaps paid for their own college or they paid off their own student loans, they are less, they are not in favor of it. So yeah, it does come down to that. I am one of those people who ended college with student loan debt. When I graduated in 1985, I had $7,000, which mm-hmm. seemed like a fortune back then. Right. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> I got And you probably paid I, it off, I, right? I got the payments deferred for a few years while I was on active duty in the military. But yes, I eventually paid it off and it never occurred to me that I wouldn't pay off a loan that I signed mm-hmm. for. Mm-hmm. Now, you'll appreciate this, Mike. Once I got married, Mike knows my former husband. It was a big surprise to my new husband when he ran across that sizable loan amount when he was paying bills. <laughs> he said, he said, what is this? And I said, oh, did I not mention I had student loan debt? <laughs> yes, I forgot. But yeah, you know, we, we, Whoops, paid, Marna. we paid that off for years, for years. Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah. Well, especially since he went to West Point, and you know, so he probably wasn't even familiar with that. He wasn't. <laughs> everything, everything was covered. I mean, yeah. he worked. I'm sure, you know, way more than what he got in return. But you know, I don't know if that's a fair statement. But he probably wasn't even mindful of of that kind of thing. No, I don't think he was. No, we were, we were not. You know, I went to West Point too. I mean, that was not part of our world. Although it may have been at the beginning when we were applying to schools, it certainly was for me. I mean, uh, I looked at going to West Point as a, a sort of economic equation, and I wanted to go to the best school I could get into there where I would spend the least amount of money. There were quite a few reasons for that based on my family situation, and West Point was the one. So at that point, it no longer was an issue. And Kelly, you probably did too. Yeah, I, I had some, some student debt. I didn't have a lot because I was lucky because I had um, you know some athletic money. But with law school... I did, but reasonable. I knew friends down in Richmond that went to University of Richmond, which was a private, expensive law school, and they were paying student debt for years and years. I mean, like 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt really lucky because I had a little bit of debt when I finished college, and then I became a Virginia State resident. I went to George Mason. So it was very reasonable, but I but I did have some debt because... I couldn't work enough to cover school while trying to to be a law student, mm-hmm. but it, it wasn't it wasn't terrible. But yeah, I paid it off every month for several years. I mean, I didn't even think of it. I you know I just I just paid it. <laughs> yeah, and to be fair, I came out of college with a lot less debt than people are coming out of college with now. I, Kelly, I remember Kelly and I attended college together. We both arrived at William Mary, nineteen eighty three. And I remember specifically the cost of in-state tuition in 1983 was $800 per semester. Wow. Okay. Do you know what it is now? $20,000. Wow. So that, that, just by the way, is one of the underlying issues here. You know, people say that this is only a symptom of the fact that there has been this incredible inflation in the costs of higher education, far out of proportion to the rest of the world, the rest of our nation in terms of inflation. So, Right. Funny you should mention that because if you use the inflation rate on $800, mm-hmm. given 2.82% annual inflation over mm-hmm. uh, 40 years, right. it would be $6,000, Yeah, almost 6100 not 20000 And it's three times that. Yeah. 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 I know I found in my papers a bill from William and Mary that was for a full semester, and I think it was like $2,400 or something like that for out-of-state. Yeah. Out-of-state was $2,003 per semester. I remember that figure, too. Yeah, it's really gone up. And that's another part of the problem here is that these students who have incurred this debt you know, many of them were 18-year-olds when they started this, maybe 17-year-olds, 
And, you know, they had no credit. They had no experience. They were told they had to go to college, get into the absolute best college you can. They did that part. And, you know, that was sort of like mission accomplished at that point. And then they go to a place called the Financial Aid Office, and very nice people figure out a payment package for them, which may include, you know, some sort of grants from the school. It may include, you know, commercial loans. It may include government loans. But the point is they come up with a financial aid solution. And these kids don't know what they're signing up for. And they're doing it in a highly inflated environment, which is our higher education system. Yeah, so. I agree. So given that a generation of young people has sort of been sold a bill of goods and bought into this culture of you have to go to college, higher tier college, the better. Mm-hmm. And now they're strapped with huge student loan debts. Do we owe it to them to give them a hand to forgive these debts because they were sold a bill well, of goods? Well, that's the interesting way that you phrased it. Do we owe it to them? Um, eh, maybe not. You know, what's the what should be the role of government? Government should be um, doing things that benefit the broader society, that create the conditions for people to find success. And um, so if you look at it from that perspective... Uh, this would affect a lot of people, and it would disproportionately affect those who are earning uh, less. You know, some people make the argument that this is just going to all go into the pockets of the, the rich, and I disagree with that. I think it's a pretty good program when you look at the way in which government uh, spends its money, spends our money, and um, it would unleash a tremendous amount of human potential. Because there are a lot of people who are burdened with student debt. And, oh, by the way, many of them didn't graduate from college. Somewhere on the order of 40% of them never got a degree, never got a certificate. So they're out there working in something other than a professional capacity, and they still have student debt. So, um, And I should mention that $10,000 forgiveness is, I mean, it's a lot of money to me, but a lot of people have a lot more student debt than $10,000. Oh, yeah. yeah, right. And it's $20,000 if you qualified for a Pell Grant while you were in school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is for low-income families. Right. But right. for most people, it's going to be $10,000, which would so be it's, nice. So it's a pretty well-targeted program. And we have given away so much money in the last four years. Um, I was doing a little back-of-the-envelope math here. And, you know, just between pandemic relief and the Trump tax cuts, we're looking at $7 trillion that was that's, pumped into the economy. Yeah, that's a lot so of that's, money. So that's 14 times the amount we're talking about, maybe more, 15, 16 times the amount of money we're talking about when it comes to this student, le- student debt relief program. So Your argument is perhaps like, hey, we've been doing stuff like this already. What's another plan? Kind well, of what's yeah, another amount that, of money? That's a good way for uh, you know all, us all to go broke if we're not there already, Kelly. Right? Again, government likes to spend money, and so you know if we were to choose a way to spend money, this is certainly not the worst way. I think it's well targeted. I think it would help the right people. I think it would unleash human potential. Um, I'm always a believer that it's good to invest in education. Um, it also would go, in some small measure, to address the the raging inco- income inequality that we have in our country, 
where I mean the rich keep getting richer and it's it's gotten to the point where it's it's corrosive to the nation it's corrosive to our population you know the amount of uh, the disparity in wealth in this country so I agree with you on the disparity of wealth. I'm not sure I agree about this particular plan because I think if you look at the legal aspects of it under the law, I think that uh, the states that are challenging this are probably in a good position mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and may and may be right. Like mm-hmm. whether you like the Trump tax cuts or not, they went through Congress and Congress reviewed and approved them. So mm-hmm. I think True. I think that. One of the problems is recently is all these executive actions or regulatory actions in these, you know, you get into the balance of power and who's permitted to do what. Mm -hmm. But I'm. But some would argue, Kelly, that that train has already left the station because um, the dysfunction in our government right now where Congress doesn't take on its constitutional responsibilities um, just something near and dear to my heart. When's the last time Congress declared war? Which, oh, by right. the way, is a requirement. And we've been in a whole bunch of wars. And When was it? Uh, World it War II? World War II, yes. Okay. You know, so, throw the bums out. Let's get, <laughs> let's get some folks that are going to do the like right I thing. like I said that at one point in my life. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Well, let me let me share with you guys something interesting. I, I was listening to Bill Maher, who... Um, I often don't agree with, but I find him to be super smart, thought-provoking. He just calls it as he sees it, and I think he's liberal, but I don't know. He'll just call it as he sees it, and it, it's it's he's pretty awesome. A bit yeah, because he lately. he just I think he's getting a little fed up. He he's kind of in the middle. He's sort of a real practical guy, but he had Bernie Sanders on, and he brought up this poll by NBC that talked about what student loan borrowers were going to do with their, you know, with their money. Um, And he brought it up to Sanders and said, hey, are you aware that, you know, a poll was done about these borrowers and like, hey, what are you going to do with this money if you're, you know, if your debt is forgiven? And so, and he read to Sanders and Sanders was incredulous. He didn't believe it. He was like, who, what kind of poll is this? Who? And he was like NBC and Sanders was kind of quiet. But the key findings of the poll were 73% of applicants said they are likely to spend their extra money on non-essentials, including vacations, smartphones, drugs, and alcohol. Men more likely than women are, are going to spend the money oh, on no. non-essentials, 84% of men versus 65% of women. Uh, three times as many Democrats than Republicans say it's acceptable to spend the money on non-essentials. 77% of applicants said they could use the money more wisely. Four in 10 say student loans haven't negatively affected their lives. <laughs> then it got into you know more granular information. They're likely to spend the extra money on smartphones, 44%, uh, investing in the stock market, 43%, so that's good, gifts, 42%, gaming systems, 36%, drugs or alcohol, 28%, gambling, 27%. Yeah, pretty discouraging. Oh, that's demoralizing. Yeah, okay. (laughs) So, (laughs) 
I've long, long ago learned that don't believe everything you hear and don't believe everything you read. Um, I just okay. would like to know, <laughs> you know, if you if you eliminate this for a lot of people, I think yeah. I don't know. Just from personal experience, having met a lot of young people who are who have student debt and who are trying to pay it off, you know, it really is an anchor. It slows them down, um, or it's brought them to a standstill. You know, they. They don't buy a house. They don't buy a car. They don't get married. They don't move. They don't do those things that kind of can often be, you know, accelerators in life and then that then translate into the broader society and, you know, kind of keep the economic wheels turning. So you have a lot of people who are kind of stuck and they're in, a, in some sort of stasis because they're just trying to get out from under this debt. I would be interested, and I don't have an answer to this, but I would be interested to look at what the comparison figures are between uh, credit card debt and student loan debt, because that's another thing in our country which buries a lot of young people. And, you know, the survey was 1,250, Mm -hmm. you know, people. So you've got 43 million Americans that this impacts. So I I don't know about these, you know, these polls and these surveys, what they really Mm -hmm. mean. But I just thought it was interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, a little bit sad. Um, I give them credit for being honest. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, our generation would be like, oh, yes, we're going to save or we're going to do this or we're going to do that. But they're just like, oh, yeah, no, this is what we're going to do, which is (laughs) I give them credit for that. There's a, a young man in my circle that I work with, and he said because of the loan pause on interest, he and his wife were able to buy a house. Yeah. No, it's it's for real. Mm-hmm. It's not all trips to you yeah. know Tahiti and drug. Yeah, all right. well, I didn't mean to imply that it was, but <laughs> but you know if you play the lottery every day, who knows yeah, what will know. happen? Mike, you mentioned credit card debt. I just looked it up. Nine hundred eighty-six billion in credit card debt in this country. One point six trillion in student loan debt. Big numbers. Big big numbers. But wow. if it's one point six trillion, I don't mean to interrupt you. And this program would forgive. 400 billion, let's call it a half a trillion. That's a third of the debt. Like, mm-hmm. who's going to bear that? There's got to be, I'm not an economist, but there's got to mm-hmm. be some serious consequences to just making a third of student debt disappear. I, I, I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, I just, you know, the decision from the Supreme Court will come in June. And, you know, I'm confident that I'm, not that I'm, I don't want people to get mad at me and think I'm rooting one way or another, but based on, I know. Cause, <laughs> Are you totally dispassionate, Kelly? <laughs> well, I'm trying to be, but Come on. I'm just saying if I were a betting person, <laughs> which I'm not supposed to be, <laughs> but even like if you read the articles in the New York Times or the Washington Post, which tend to be yeah. pretty liberal, they're like, hey, the only chance of the Supreme Court ruling in favor of the administration is, you know, some weird standing, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and that's when, you know, they want to get, I almost feel like when they do that, they almost want to get to a certain, you know, decision and they find a way to get there. And I I don't see that happening here. It does seem like a, a huge quantum leap to take the wording of that act and interpret it to mean, yeah, we can just dismiss all this loan. Well, these are loans, in fact, held by the government, if I'm not mistaken. So yes, um, it's not like they're going to, you know, do this on behalf of uh, private banks and things. Yeah, held or guaranteed. They're only government related. Guaranteed by the um, government, and that's yeah. where you're really getting into the, you know, the meat of the argument. Marna does waive or modify in the statute permit outright cancellation. 
And one could argue that a modification is a change, and a change could include taking it to zero. I mean, I think one could argue that, but I think the problem under the major questions doctrine is, is that clear? And then also you have the issue, the underlying concern of this vast economic and political significance and, and the feeling that these are decisions that Congress should make, not courts yeah, or, yeah. Or, or the executive branch. Oh, to- right. totally agree right. with I that. I mean, but we unfortunately do not have a Congress right now which is willing to perform, you know, the duties that it normally would or was it was envisioned doing in our system of government. So, Okay, two tough questions here coming okay. from me, conservative Midwestern. What, what does that make me, Marna? Go ahead, go ahead. Please don't label <laughs> me Marna. Okay. <laughs> a, a great guy. That makes you a great guy. So, uh, Mike, I heard what you said about this mm-hmm. is uh, going to yeah. be good for the young folks to get rid of this debt, and it's going to unleash a lot of potential. I could certainly understand that. My question is, is this a political candy to bribe millions of young voters to vote uh, for a certain party? I think party? very clearly, yes. Um, it's also a political candy to appease a certain part of the Democratic Party on the part of this administration. Then again, isn't everything that's done at the highest levels in government fundamentally political? So, um, yeah, nobody ever, yeah, nobody ever your like, answer. stands up and kind of does the right thing because then they won't get reelected. We didn't mention this. There are uh, income limitations on this student loan forgiveness. Mm-hmm. P- people earning less than $125,000 qualify. Mm-hmm. or $250,000 per couple. So it's not everybody. Last question here. What message does it send to young people that you can take out loans and then they'll be forgiven? It sends the message that they should vote for Joe Biden. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm sorry, being facetious. It's a good point. It seems um, like a bad although message Although as to a me. historian, I must point out that debt forgiveness, debt relief is a time-honored Um, technique of leadership throughout the millennia. I think, I again, I'm back to my original point, which I made a while ago. If the government is going to hand out money, this is a very good way to do it um, for the effect that it will have. Okay. And Kelly, do you agree or disagree? Yeah, I I don't agree. Uh, But I, you know, I'm afraid that it sends the message that you know, there aren't consequences for your actions and you're not responsible for your decisions. And then maybe you do something down the road or you borrow money and then you're surprised when you actually have to pay it back or, you know, you think maybe, oh, maybe this will happen again. You know, I don't know. I don't want to be unfair to borrowers. I'm sure some of them, it's really needed and will be appreciated and they won't expect anything like that to happen in the future. But I do worry about the long-term consequences. We, we always pick winners and losers. I mean, Congress does. There's all sorts of stuff that they do for certain industries, certain businesses, you know, to incentivize, de-incentivize. I think the issue is, is this what they intended to do here? Yeah, there might be some unintended consequences in terms of social Well, and then there's just the one. fundamental fairness concern. issue. What about the blue-collar folks who um, couldn't afford to go to college, didn't want to take out loans, mm-hmm. and are, you know, they're a plumber, um, you know, or they're a craftsman. They, they yeah. have lawn service. 
They had a lot of expenses starting up a lawn landscaping yeah. service. They took out a loan to do that. And now these are questions. Yeah, that are I mean, Justice out. Roberts and talked about that. Think. What about the young man who went out and started his landscaping or his lawn business? And one of the liberal justices said, yes, well, but the HEROES Act only talked about, <laughs> only talked about, you know, borrowers, student borrowers. So they didn't decide to address, you know, lawn care providers. It was kind of a clever response. But I do think that is a part of the larger question, the larger topic. And uh, let me just wrap this up here. I think there's one thing that we can all agree on, and that is that college funding and affordability is in need of reform, in dire need of reform. Dave Ramsey has said that we got to turn to a sustainable federal and state system of funding higher education that actually improves students' economic well-being. And I totally agree with that. I was talking to my sister about this. She's a physician, and she said, it seems so big, it's almost ungovernable. She said it seems like health care was, but we need to take it on. Well, the other thing is there really are ways to do this, and I feel like people are not well-informed. I don't know whether it's by their high schools, by their high school counselors, but there are ways to go to college for a reasonable amount of money. You can start You can start sure, at your local yeah. community college, which is very reasonable. Sure. Actually, you can start in high school getting right, college credits. But, but, you know, you could go to your local community college – super reasonable, and then any state yeah, school will accept those two years of credits, and you can continue at a state university, which, you know, I know some are not reasonable, maybe the more um, prestigious, but some are quite reasonable, and then you can get your degree that way. I think, unfortunately, some students are being sold this bill of goods that you have to go to a private school, or, you know, you, you've got to go to the best, you know, most prestigious you don't. I mean, it's fine to, when you look at some of the most successful people, um, some don't have college educations. And some, you know, started in, in like a state system or got their, you know, bachelor's degree at a at a state or, you know, a land grant university. And then, you know, perhaps if they continued on, that's when they focused on, you know, getting a you know, going to a more prestigious school. The other thing I'd say is, you know, as you pointed out, Mike, is there's all sorts of ROTC programs, um, you know, ways that, you you know, if you have any interest that you could serve your country and help pay for college. There's a lot of money to be had there. There's teacher loan forgiveness programs if you teach in low-income areas, teach math and science. There's public service Mm -hmm. loan forgiveness and... Mm-hmm. Also, not to be a bummer, but there's total and permanent disability forgiveness. And we also have a history of uh, forgiving student loans if they were victims of predatory mm-hmm. schools. I'll go ahead and mention I'll mention some here. ITT Tech, DeVry, Corinthian, right. and Kaplan Career right. Institute. They're all now gone. I still see DeVry signs. Do you? Yeah. Well, they had an enormous marketing scheme, and I know they were heavily invested in uh, military clients, Um, you know, young soldiers who were trying to get degrees. They were all around military bases, in my experience. Bad, bad, bad. Yeah. All right. This has been a very interesting discussion today. Thank you both for your input. 
Now we turn to our segment called On a Positive Note, part of our show where we like to leave you with something upbeat to think about for the coming week. And I know Mike has a positive note. So what do you got for us, Mike? Um, I just want to give a thank you to someone I saw yesterday. I was very pleasantly surprised to see him. His name is Joe Kahn. Um, He's for decades and decades and decades um, as a high school coach and high school athletic director. But in his retirement, um, he's continued to teach people, and he's focused, um, among other things, on cross-country skiing. And I saw Joe out skiing yesterday at Mount Van Hovenberg. Uh, I don't know how old Joe is, but he's well into his 80s. And there he was moving along, gliding down the tracks. You know, as I continued after having chatted with him for a few moments, I just I said, wow, that's what, that's what graceful living looks like, and that's what making a difference looks like. So thanks to Joe. Right. So I'm, I'm hearing that cross-country skiing is a lifetime sport. It is one of the healing sports, Marta. <laughs> that's yes. right. It's, there, are, there are four or five healing sports, you know, walking, swimming, cross-country skiing, cycling. Have you seen Jim Gaffigan's bit on cross-country skiing, Mike? No. Oh Should my I? God, it's hysterical. It's not super complimentary of cross-country skiing. It's Well, Jim Gaffigan has an ineffable way of... Did I use that word right, Marna? It depends on how you're using it. I'll tell you in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Of taking the most mundane things in our lives and just making them incredibly ridiculous and side-splittingly funny. Yeah, that's um, for sure. <laughs> I will never again go to Disneyland and not think of Jim Gaffigan. Yeah, yeah I'll um, I'll so, find it. Okay, and, yeah, throw that up there. And then maybe there. we should put it up on the We should, uh, definitely. It is hysterical. Well, Kelly, we'll all look at that. We'll carefully consider it. And then I'm going to invite <laughs> you to come to the cold, frozen north when we have a nice layer of snow. And not only will I put you up and feed you, but I, w- I will, you know, provide cross-country ski lessons should you be <laughs> oh my god okay you're gonna spend five minutes with me and you and kathy are gonna be like have a nice trip home now wait 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 i just heard you say earlier in this episode that you are a scholarship athlete okay so don't was. tell me that <laughs> there's not like some embedded coordination there okay that's all it takes kelly i'm your your reasons for not doing this are evaporating very Mike, my experience with cross-country skiing took place up there in the frozen north where you live and my uh, husband at the time took Mm -hmm. me cross-country skiing and i struggled and Mm -hmm. we came to this intersection and one sign said lodge warmth and hot chocolate and the other (laughs) sign said thousands of miles of cold icy snowy trails (laughs) which path did you take marna i I exited left to the lodge the (laughs) ex-husband continued cross-country skiing but it was a lot of fun for the first you know all right well i will extend the same invitation to you i'll give it another try i understand you were a scholarship i was not so so you know i got i got some raw material to work with here i just did it for the love of the sport but you were a collegiate athlete okay Okay, that's going to be it for us today. You know what? We would love to hear from you. You can write to us at inbox at ethicsandetiquette.com or our Instagram is at ethicsetiquette or go to our website, ethicsandetiquette.com. If you want to support what we're doing, subscribe to our podcast. And we'd appreciate it if you took the time to leave a positive review while you're there. And thank you to all of you who keep recommending Ethics and Etiquette to your friends and family. For Kelly Halligan Zimmerman and Mike Derrick, I'm Marna Ashburn, and this is Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking dialogue about everyday dilemmas. Thanks for joining us. New episodes are posted on the first and third Wednesdays of the month. See you then.